0: Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to Aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering one of the Harlem Renaissance's best poets, County Cullen. In the years after World War I in New York City, there was a surge of artistic work centered on the Black experience in America— County Cullen, a black poet writing in Harlem, was a part of this artistic movement and, at the time, probably the most famous black poet in America. Today we're going to explore his life and why he's not as well remembered as his contemporaries. I also want to note up front that while I'm going to use capital B black to refer to Cullen's race, he himself often used the word negro, which is a word that has become much less popular today. So just note that when I'm using that, I'm quoting Cullen or his contemporaries directly. Last note, for a full transcript of today's episode, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's u n r u l y f i g u r e s.substack.com. In addition to the full transcript, you can also get ad-free episodes, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, and so much more. So check it out! Alright, let's hop back in time. County Cullen was born as County Leroy Porter on May 30th, 1903. Right up front, his birthday is a surprisingly disputed fact, with people placing his birth as late as 1905 or sometimes changing the month. But May 30, 1903 is the date he gave in an, in an anthology he himself edited, Caroling Dusk. As far as we know, Cullen was raised by his grandmother until she passed away when he was about 11. When he was 14 or 15, Cullen was adopted by Frederick Asbury Cullen, the pre- the pastor of Harlem's salem Methodist Episcopal Church, and from whom Cullen took his last name. What he was doing or where he was for those three years in between isn't really in the historical record. I couldn't find what happened to his parents either to cause him to be raised by a grandmother. As we'll see, this is part of the problem of studying Cullen. He was incredibly secretive about his life. Regardless, this adoption by the Cullens was a boon for the young county in many ways. He was given a room to himself and, quote, a new life of books, discussions, and parental tenderness, which he'd been denied up until then. According to Houston A. Baker Jr., the Cullens probably spoiled their only child a little, but a little spoiling couldn't have been heaped on a more humble recipient. He grew up to be kind, a hard worker, and remained a grateful son to his adopted parents for the rest of his life. He was very bright and successful academically, described as, quote, a model student participating eagerly in extracurricular activities and bringing home commendable marks. He began writing poetry when he was still a teenager. His first ever published poem, To the Swimmer, appeared in the Modern School Literary Magazine during his sophomore year of high school. Throughout high school, in fact, Cullen contributed to literary magazines, and it sounds like he made money doing it. After high school, he went on to study English literature at NYU, While there, he won prizes in two different poetry contests, the Witter Biner and Crisis. Through these contests and submissions, he became so popular that by 1924, it seemed that no literary magazine could bear to go to press without a County Cullen poem. 1925 was a big year for Cullen. Not only was it the year that he graduated from NYU and began his master's studies at Harvard, But his first collection of poems, Color, was published and secured Cullen's place as a leading figure of the Harlem Renaissance. He gained national celebrity and was one of the first black American poets to ever do so. In 1926, Cullen accepted an editorial job with Opportunity, the official organ of the National Urban League. The following year, Harper Publishing House released a few volumes from Cullen, Carolling Dusk, an anthology of poetry that he edited, Copper's Son, his second collection of poetry, and finally, The Ballad of the Brown Girl, a rendering of an old ballad that George Lyman Kittredge described as, quote, the finest literary ballad he had ever read. His second collection, Copper Sun, wasn't as well-received as his first collection, though, which deeply disappointed Cullen. Nevertheless, he graduated from Harvard, and on the strength of the body of his work, he received a Guggenheim Fellowship in 1928. Now, I know that we just, like, breezed through 20-plus years of his life. Like I said, there's not a ton of information about his early life, unfortunately. So instead, let's talk about his poetry in depth a little, though I'm by no means an expert on poetry. Um, Cullen's education was at mostly white schools, and so his frame of reference for poetry was largely white European poets. He was especially influenced by the capital R Romantics, including John Keats and Wordsworth. He would later go on to credit Edna St. Vincent Millay as a, as a literary influence as well, and they were technically contemporaries, so though she's a little older than he was. Um, and he held on to these influences his whole career. According to Gerald Early on the Poetry for All podcast, Cullen's formal education meant that he was probably the most well-trained black poet in history to that time. Now I mentioned the Harlem Renaissance earlier. This was a movement in the 1920s and to a lesser extent the 1930s which tried to consciously cultivate important black artists to give black Americans a unique artistic culture that reflected their unique history and perspective. White American art of this period often left black Americans out in every form, not just literally keeping black people out of the frame in paintings, but also excluding black students from art schools, collectors not paying for black artists, etc. As Gerald Early said, the Harlem Renaissance movement was a conscious decision within the black American community to financially support their own artists and create a black American canon of art and literature outside of what white Americans were doing. According to Early, quote, James Weldon Johnson was very interested during the 20s and the Harlem Renaissance in wanting to create a canon. And basically, the Book of American Negro Poetry was creating a black canon. But what's more important than the actual poets he put in the book was the introduction he wrote to the book. Because in the introduction, he wrote out the creed for the Harlem Renaissance. It was about black people creating great art because he said, no people have ever been discriminated against for long if they have created great art, end quote. For Johnson, Cullen personified that. He could take black themes and write technically precise poetry that would be well-regarded in white critical circles. His education had been highly Eurocentric, and so the references he relied on were equally Eurocentric. He used Greek mythology to explore race in America, You know, in one of his most famous poems called And Yet Do I Marvel, he referred to Sisyphus and Tantalus. Because of this, though, his style was considered a little conservative, even if the content wasn't. He was still using very traditional forms of poetry at a time when other black poets, like Langston Hughes, were beginning to reject that style as a part of white supremacy. While Cullen was hugely beloved during his time, there was dissent even then because using these forms of poetry was seen as Cullen and other black poets trying to fit themselves and their art into white structures of quality and power. For Langston Hughes and later generations, it wasn't enough to simply address racial themes within your art, which Cullen did do, but to be truly black art, they wanted to break away from what white people said was art. And we saw Jean-Michel Basquiat inheriting that thought process within his own art style 60 years later. Arguably, this is a big part of why Lynx and Hughes is so much better remembered than County Cullen, even though they were contemporaries and Cullen was much more famous during their lifetimes. Hughes would go on to gain more fame for his invention of new forms of poetry, and Cullen would kind of be forgotten for adhering to tradition. On top of that, though, Langston Hughes was very vocal about being a black poet. In fact, he indirectly criticized Cullen and other black writers following in Cullen's footsteps, condemning, quote, the desire to pour racial individuality into the mold of American standardization and to be as little Negro and as much American as possible, end quote. While Johnson thought that Cullen personified his specific goals within the Harlem Renaissance, as the movement grew, Cullen's decision to color within the lines, so to speak, was rejected by a lot of Black Americans who were looking for more. It's it's too simplistic to link this directly to the Black Power movement. That That movement didn't even really start to take shape until the 1960s. But the Black Power Movement and the later Harlem Renaissance shared an ethos of celebrating the ways Black Americans are special and different from white America, and Cullen didn't quite meet that standard. Because for all that that Cullen wrote a lot of poetry with racial themes, and his most famous poems deal with racism, Cullen did not want to be known as a Black poet. He wanted to be known as a poet, period. No qualifier. He saw being considered a Black poet as a subset. If you've seen Fleabag, it reminds me of when Kristen Scott Thomas' character calls women's awards, quote, infantilizing bollocks, ghettoizing, a subsection of success. In the 1927 poetry anthology he edited, Caroling Dusk, Cohen said something really similar. This is a long quote, but bear with me. I have called this collection an anthology of verse by Negro poets rather than an anthology of Negro verse, since this latter designation would be more confusing than accurate. Negro poetry, it seems to me, in the sense that we speak of Russian, French, or Chinese poetry, must emanate from some country other than this in some language other than our own. Moreover, the attempt to corral the outbursts of the Ebony Muse into some definite mold to which all poetry by Negroes will conform seems altogether futile and aside from the facts. This country's Negro writer... This country's Negro writer may here and there turn to some singular facet toward the literary sun. But in the main, since theirs is also the heritage of the English language, their work will not present any serious aberration from the poetic tendencies of their times. As heretical as it may sound, there is the probability that Negro poets, dependent as they are on the English language, may have more to gain from the rich background of English and American poetry than from any nebulous, atavistic yearnings toward an African inheritance. Some of the poets herein represented will eventually find inclusion in any discriminately ordered anthology of American verse, and here will be no reason for giving such selections the needless distinction of a separate section marked Negro verse. End quote. Now, this is a throwing down of an academic gauntlet if I ever heard one. What Cullen's basically saying is kind of what Phoebe Waller-Bridge wrote almost hundred years later. Distinction of Black poetry versus American poetry is unnecessary and unwelcome. To separate these out, to say that these poems are worth noting because they're by Black poets, erases some of their poetic merit in Cullen's eyes. In a big way, this thesis runs counter to what the whole point of the Harlem Renaissance was about, and it was being espoused by one of the darlings of the Harlem Renaissance. Cullen didn't want to be the best black poet in America. He wanted to be the best poet in America. And for a long time, all he got for that was to be forgotten. I'll tell you what comes next after a brief word from a sponsor. back. So on April 9th, 1928, Cullen married W.E.B. Du Bois' daughter Yolande. His adoptive father Frederick officiated. This was an event for the black community in America. I read something written very recently that called it the most extravagant wedding the black community in America has ever witnessed, which I think is a pretty bold claim to write when we have photos of Beyonce's wedding, but I guess that says a lot about how far the families went to celebrate this marriage. It really wasn't just any wedding. The union of these two families was seen as this like auspicious heralding of the future. This would be like if 20 years from now, one of Beyonce's kids married one of Kim Kardashian's kids. It has a sense of dynasties uniting, right? But it was also about how far it seemed like the black community had come in America by then. County and Yolande seemed really to be symbols for a bright future. The Du Bois family spared no expense to celebrate this. Du Bois called it a testament to the, quote, beauty and power of a new breed of American Negro, end quote. Every detail of the wedding was published in the press, including that 3,000 people piled into the church for the ceremony. Unfortunately, it wasn't the good sign people hoped for. The wedding had been mostly negotiated between and planned by Cullen and W.E.B., with Yolande not really participating or seeming very eager to help. After a brief honeymoon, Colin moved to Paris for his Guggenheim Fellowship, and Yolande went back to Baltimore. She joined him in Paris eventually, but was already unhappy. As early as the honeymoon, she had apparently written to her father saying she, quote, felt unsure about her marriage and her intimate relationships with her husband. W.B. Du Bois told her that she simply needed more experience. But by September, he was apparently trying to counsel Colin on how to make his daughter happy. Two years later, they were, quote, firmly divorced. For many years, there was little information as to why this divorce happened, but Yoland, much later in life, confirmed that the reason for their divorce was because Cullen admitted he was sexually attracted to men. Several of Cullen's friends and peers were openly gay, including Alan Locke, Harold Jackman, and Carl van Vechten. It's hard to say why he didn't feel like he could come out as they had. Perhaps it was because he was raised by a minister and still held the Christian faith close to his heart? I mean, that's just conjecture. We know he was an intensely private person generally, so maybe that's all it was? There were rumors, even amongst the public then, that Cullen had developed a relationship with Harold Jackman, the quote, handsomest man in Harlem, and a prominent figure of the 1920s gay elite. Jackman was Cullen's best man at his first wedding, and was known to be openly gay just around New York. However, there's also some evidence that Cullen himself was never very sure of his sexuality and was hesitant to call himself a gay man. His friend Alan Locke had apparently given him LGBT-affirming material, like the research of Edward Carpenter, as early as 1923. According to A Queer Capital, A History of Gay Life in Washington, D.C. by Jenny Beeman, Cullen had written back to Locke about Carpenter's work, saying, quote, "...it opened up for me soul windows which had been closed. It threw a noble and evident light on what I had begun to believe, because of what the world believes, ignoble and unnatural. I loved myself in it." Quote. As Beeman writes, "...for Cullen, Locke became a father figure, someone to whom the 19-year-old could turn for advice on questions of moral and social conduct, since he was unable to discuss his sexual feelings with his own adoptive father." Locke would go on to set Cullen up with prospective male partners, including a student of Locke's named Llewellyn Ransom. To be clear, Cullen and Ransom were around the same age at this point, both well into college. Nevertheless, as I mentioned earlier, Cullen married Yolande, and then, in 1940, married another woman, Ida Mae Roberson. Because he was so private, we don't know much about his logic behind these marriages. Were they essentially beards, keeping him safe in the public eye? Or was he attracted to them as well as to men? This is why a lot of historians aren't quote-unquote settled on Cullen's sexuality. We don't have any definitive, direct statements from him beyond what he wrote in letters. As historian Baker said, Cullen's output grew smaller as his worldview grew more dark. By the mid-1930s, his time as a serious poet was more or less over. After his Guggenheim obligations were fulfilled, namely the publication of The Black Christ and other poems, He returned to Harlem as a seemingly much sadder man. Much like his second collection of poetry, the Black Christ was poorly received, in part because of his use of religious imagery. In the title poem, he compared the crucifixion to a lynching, and people had mixed reactions to that. He never published another full collection of poetry. Cullen did put out a few novels, which weren't very well received in the 1930s, and turned to translation in children's literature in the early 1940s. He also briefly wrote for the stage, working with Arnabon Bontemps to turn his novel God Sends Sunday into the musical St. Louis Woman. It was never staged during Cullen's life, from what I could tell. During the Great Depression, Cullen began teaching English and creative writing, teaching at Frederick Douglass Junior High School, where he remained for the rest of his career. County Cullen died suddenly at the age of 42 from a combination of high blood pressure and uremic poisoning on January 9th or 10th, 1946. That weekend, on January 12th, 3,000 people piled into Salem Methodist Episcopal Church to pay their respects to him. In 2013, Cullen was posthumously inducted into the New York Writers Hall of Fame. Before we close, I'm, I'm going to read Cullen's sonnet, Yet Do I Marvel, because I, it's been... I heard it during my research, and it's been just kind of bouncing around my head ever since. So here's, um, here's Cullen's sonnet, Yet Do I Marvel. I doubt not God is good well meaning kind, and did he stoop to quibble could tell why the little buried mole continues blind, why flesh that mirrors him must someday die. Make plain the reason tortured Tantalus is baited by the fickle fruit, declare if merely brute Caprice dooms Sisyphus to struggle up a never-ending stair, Inscrutable his ways are, and immune to catechism by a mind too strewn with petty cares to slightly understand, What awful brain compels his awful hand? Yet do I marvel at this curious thing To make a poet black and bid him sing? For a really beautiful analysis of this poem, I encourage you to check out Poetry for All's podcast, episode 28. And, uh, yeah, that's the kind of short story of County Cullen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unruly Figures. If you did, tell a friend about it. You can also let me know your thoughts by following me on Twitter and Instagram as Unruly Figures. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. All by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly.